0: It's the connection. (laughs) We're going to try to get that fixed this week. Uh, (laughs) Let me tell you a story. Uh, In April 1967, hamburger lovers in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, met a newer, uh, bigger hamburger. It was called the Big Mac. And for 45 cents, it delivered in a 1970s jingle, most of you could probably sing with me, to all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun, right? Some of you are quoting it, yeah. It is burned into your brain. You heard that commercial a million times. One year later, the Big Mac was on the menu at McDonald's restaurants all over the United States. Uh, By 1969, the Big Mac, just that one sandwich, accounted for 19% of all of McDonald's sales. Okay? Uh, Today, the company sells about 550 million Big Macs annually just in the United States. Millions more in over 100 countries around the world. But you've probably never heard of a man named Jim Delligotti, who's the local franchise owner that invented the sandwich. There's a, that, that's the man's name. He was, uh, owned several uh, McDonald's in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, in the mid-1960s, was real, his, his McDonald's stores were really struggling to compete with uh, Bob's Big Boy and Burger King stores in the area. And he thought, we need a new sandwich. So they, they were playing around in the kitchen after work one night, and they came up with this Big Mac. And so um, he worked for a year to try to get his bosses to let him sell it. And they fought him, and they fought him, and they fought him. And finally, okay, fine, you can try it. Well, they, they relented. They let him try it out. And the first Big Mac was introduced April twenty second, 1967. There's Mr. Delgatti with his signature sandwich there. Uh, and sales at those McDonald's perked up immediately. The company rolled it out nationwide. It was backed by a powerful advertising campaign. Again, the jingle you can all sing. In 1986, the Economist magazine, a serious economic news reporting magazine began to calculate what they called the Big Mac Index. This is what, and they use it to evaluate currency from one country to another. In other words, like, okay, how, much, uh, how many dollars does it take in America to buy a Big Mac versus what does it cost, you know, in China versus what does it cost in, you know, uh, France or whatever. And they, they, they're measuring economic impact on a nationwide level based on how much a Big Mac costs. Your sandwich is a hit at that point, Right? And most people assume that Delegati would have reaped a windfall worth billions. His sandwich idea that he came up with has made McDonald's billions of dollars. Mostly through my lifetime. (laughs) And that's not true. In 2007, uh, they did a feature article on him, and he said, quote, All I got was a plaque. (laughs) Can you believe that? Now, it had been forever since I had a Big Mac. I, 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 I was thinking back, you can't measure this in years. You have to measure it in decades. So yesterday I went, and I had a Big Mac. First time in, in decades. I hadn't had one in forever. And now I remember why. Um, <laughs> maybe it's your thing. Cool, if you like it, you can be wrong. That's, that's fine. Um, listen, here's the thing. Sometimes human praise is underwhelming. It's fickle, isn't it? Have you been watching the news lately? (laughs) This guy's a media darling, and oh, wait, he's a criminal. (laughs) Whoops. Human praise is fickle. And that's why Jesus took the adulation of the crowd And held it in pretty low regard. That's what we're going to talk about today. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday to you. Um, We're we're finishing up uh, the last in an eight-week sermon series through Luke's gospel called Lost in the Crowd. And over the last eight weeks, we've been looking at this one word that Luke uses called, it's the Greek word, aklos. And it's just this kind of leaderless, rudderless, anonymous, faceless mob that followed Jesus everywhere he went. And so we've been just kind of tracking this word through Luke's gospel. If you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, open them uh, to Luke nineteen twenty-eight. That's where we're going to begin today. If you're new here this morning and we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to meet you. Uh, when we're done, I should be right down front. Please come down and say hi. For those of you joining us online, appreciate uh, those of you who do that every week. Thank you so much. Uh, be sure and let us know when we're all done. Fill out your online connection card. You guys can do your paper one too. That'd help us out a bunch. And uh, if, if you're local to Indy, please uh, do everything you can, move heaven and earth, try to get here next Sunday. Uh, we're going to start a brand new sermon series uh, called Hashtag uh, This. And we're going to be looking at some fun pictures of Jesus and what that can teach us about how to follow the real Jesus. Because, you know, meme Jesus is funny, but the real Jesus is the one you need to follow, okay? And so well, we're excited about that. We're going to have one more go-around with the crowds uh, today. The events we're going to look at happen on Palm Sunday, one week before Easter Sunday. This is just a day or two after Jesus has, um, you know, given Bartimaeus back his sight, called uh, Zacchaeus to follow him. You know, this is is a significant thing. We're going to also look at some things that happened uh, Thursday night and early Friday morning as part of Holy Week. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as its uh, messianic king is a major statement about God's plan to redeem the world and the nature of his rule over it. This event had a message for the people of its day, and I think it has a message for us too. You see, these passages help us answer this question. How do we know who Jesus' real disciples are? That's the question that we really need to look at today. How do we know who Jesus' real disciples are? Because there were a lot of people in the crowd who were following Jesus, but were they really following Jesus? I mean, they followed him around everywhere, but were they actually his followers? You see how I'm using that word? Well, there were some in the crowd who were. Others? Not so much. It's a very fickle crowd. So how do you know? How do you know which one in the crowd is really a follower which is, or just, just kind of following along? Well, I think if you track where the crowd pops up through these Holy Week narratives, these last chapters of Luke, you'll be able not only to answer that question, but also to understand your own discipleship to Jesus. So we're going to work through these passages toward the end of Luke's Gospel where, where we encounter the crowd, And we're going to get three tests to determine whether or not someone is a real follower of Jesus. Okay? Look with me at Luke chapter 19, starting in verse uh, 28. Okay? Luke 19, 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem, it's on a mountain. Everything is up to Jerusalem, even if you're going south, it's up. Okay? So, as he approached Bethphage, literally the house of figs, and Bethany, the house of my pain, at a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, we don't know which two, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt. And that's like a, not an Indianapolis colt, a donkey. Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. Tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. When they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. I love that phrase. They, they lifted him up and, and set him on there. They're fully participating in this event. Okay? So here's the first test to know whether or not you're really a follower of Jesus. Do you obey when it's weird or hard? The first test to know if you're really a follower of Jesus is, do you obey him when it's weird or hard? I mean, that's basically what Jesus tells two of his disciples to do, right? This this village is, we don't know if it's Bethphage or Bethany, it's one of the two. The disciples, you know, they do as Jesus has instructed them. Everything happens exactly as he says it would. In fact, this sense of Jesus knowing the future kind of adds to the mood of the passage, right? Like he's totally in control here. He's he's in complete command of the situation. And it just kind of builds this mood like, oh man, Jesus is he's absolutely managing this. It's it's happening exactly the way he wants. Okay? Now here's the point. Jesus knows exactly what he's riding into. He's not surprised. Jesus was not caught unaware by the events of Palm Sunday. It's not like he just got caught up in the moment. <laughs> he knows exactly what's about to happen. He understands the nature of this crowd. He's also very aware of the historical connections of what he's doing. In 1 Kings 139, it says that King Solomon rode into Jerusalem to, to when he, in his coronation ceremony on David's mule, <laughs> Not a war horse. In Solomon's case, it was a workhorse. In Jesus' case, it's, it's, a, col- it's a young don- it's, it's a donkey. It's a work animal. It, the, 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 he's not coming in in this high and mighty glorious sense. He's coming in humble and meek and mild. He's very aware of the historical connection. People are going to see this king-like figure riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a work animal, and go... That sounds familiar. I think I remember that from a thousand years before. I remember my history. So Jesus is very aware of the historical connection, but he's also very aware of the messianic connection of this story. See, in Matthew, all four Gospels tell of this event. This is one of the very few things that all four Gospels talk about. They talk about the feeding of the 5,000, they talk about this, and then pretty much all of them tell the crucifixion story. In different ways and sometimes with different timelines. But this is one of like two major events that all four Gospels talk about. Matthew and Mark, when they tell the story, they include a, a prophecy from Zechariah. Look at this. Zechariah 9.9 says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Victori- righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is very, this was, everybody in Jesus' day understood this to be messianic. Like when the Messiah comes, this is, this is who we're talking about. We're talking about the Messiah. So when he comes in, everybody gets it, right? They, they get what's happening. And Jesus is very aware of this. He even instructs his disciples. This is how we're going to fulfill this prophecy. And so from our perspective, we look at this and we go, yay, Jesus! Woo! Just a second, hit pause. And look at these two disciples. Think about it from their perspective. What would that have been like for them? Jesus tells them what to do. right? Can you imagine that experience for those two disciples? And Just, just play this out in your mind. Like You're going to go into the, the, the village. We're going to go into the village. You're going to see a colt. We're going to see a colt. You're going to untie the colt. we are going to untie the colt. And then you're going to bring it here to me. I'm going to bring it here to you. If somebody asks what you're doing... Tell them the Lord needs it. Wait, what? <laughs> like, this is just weird. Like, like, if this goes bad, they could get in trouble. They might get a beating. Like, it looks, because it looks like stealing. Remember, this is a work animal. If you came home one day, or if you if walked out of your house one day, and someone's getting in your car and starting it, you're going to have some questions. What are you doing? <laughs> What's, I, need, I need this. Or can tell even better, my church needs your truck. Okay? <laughs> you know, th- this is weird. And the Bible is full of times when God tells someone to do something weird or hard. Abraham. Yeah? Sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He's not being unclear. Okay. <laughs> right, Moses, throw your stick on the ground. It'll become a snake. Gideon, I only want you to take 300 men into battle, and all I want them to have is a a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. Sharp stick or, you know, knife? Nope. Okay. Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. You're not allowed to cry. You can't mourn for her. Okay? Mary, you're going to have a baby even though no man's ever touched you. The Holy Spirit's going to do that. Okay? The Bible's full of this. Of God telling people to do things that's weird or hard. And that's why we remember those people cuz every time god said do this thing that's weird or hard they said okay yes lord that's why we remember them it's because they obeyed when god said to do something weird or hard you want what is the essence of discipleship it's saying yes to jesus okay lord okay See, one of the best tests to know whether or not someone is a true disciple of Jesus is if they obey him when he tells them to do something weird or hard. Love your enemies. Pray for people who hate you. Give sacrificially. Sex is only for a man and woman who are married to each other. Go the extra mile. Give away your coat to someone who doesn't have one. All of those things are weird or hard. But the, the text teaches us that the way to tell which people in a crowd are true disciples are the ones who obey Jesus in those moments. There's another test that we see in this passage. Look with me at Luke 19, starting in verse 36. Look at this. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, now you need to get your geography right, all right, It goes down the Mount of Olives, means they're at the top of it. They're overlooking the city of Jerusalem. They're, they're on, on the mountain to the east from Jerusalem. So this is, it's the part where it crests the hill and begins to go down. That's where this happens. Okay. The whole crowd, there's our word, <laughs> the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. This is the passage we read earlier. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I don't know why they said it. Maybe they're afraid of Rome. Don't want to get in trouble with the boss. (laughs) Maybe they they don't want to acknowledge the Messiahship of Jesus. And they're like, you need to tell them to be quiet or this is going to go somewhere we don't want it to go. I don't know. But they say be quiet. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The scholars go round and round. Does he mean just creation itself? Or is this, is this a reference to Jerusalem itself? The city, the very city, the city of the king. will will acknowledge him as king. Probably some of both. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. There's some irony there. Jesus is the prince of peace. Jerusalem, the name Jerusalem means the city of peace. And Jesus is saying, the one who will bring you peace. You, you, didn't, you didn't see, you didn't recognize. Look at this. He said, if you'd only known what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. He's acknowledging prophetically the destruction of Jerusalem, but what happened by the Romans in 70 A.D. He said they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. For any people who say Jesus did not consider himself to be God, I'm like, you haven't read that verse because clearly, that's I mean, the way he talks. He's the one coming. He calls himself God right there. Jesus sees this city. And yes, he came as a man, but he uses a very feminine image, doesn't he? A mother hen caring for her chicks. This is the magnitude and glory of God that no matter if you're male or female, he understands you. He, he made you. He gets where you're coming from. He understands your heart. And, and, and he sees the city and he weeps over it. The, the, the lostness of the city. The, the, the way that they're far away from God. And if you're here this morning and you're far away from God, you need to know that Jesus desperately wants to gather you to himself. And that's the second test. See, a real disciple is going to celebrate the right things. They're going to celebrate the right things. See, in Luke's gospel, this story comes to its climax. Not like in Matthew, Mark, and John, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. But instead, in Luke's gospel, the story hits its climax when he weeps for the city. And so while Jesus deserves a triumphal entry as a king, Luke is emphasizing that, yes, he, he deserves that, but he's moving to a place of rejection. Even as Jesus is welcomed as a king by the crowd, we see he's already anticipating their rejection. You see, you have to pay attention to what the crowd is celebrating. We read it earlier. Look again at Luke nineteen thirty-seven. When he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd, the aklos of disciples, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Now Luke doesn't mention the palm branches. We handed out palm branches today. He doesn't mention that. That detail comes from John. Matthew and Mark say they cut branches. They don't say what kind. John's the one who tells us they're from the palm tree. Okay. And, and, and they're, they're laying them down on the road. They're throwing their coats down. It's a sign of homage and respect so that the donkey won't stumble. It's, I'm going to throw my coat on the road. Does, can you imagine throwing your coat down over a pothole? <laughs> like, you know, take your pick. I mean, you don't have enough coats. Um, they're throwing their coat down. They want to smooth the way. They want to make it easy for the donkey. Now, here's the interesting thing. Normally they would wave palm branches at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a different Jewish feast. This is Passover. This, this is just a few days before Passover. The Feast of Tabernacles anticipated the end times. He's, the, the Lord is going to come back and redeem us. That's what, the, the Tabernacles look forward to the end times. Passover was about their redemption, their forgiveness, right? It's the day that God passed over and brought them out of Egypt and Jesus coming to Jerusalem to die on the cross in our place for our sins is both. The images come together here of end times redemption and forgiveness of sin, atonement in the person of Jesus. It looks forward to one day when he comes again. We'll talk about that next week. And it it reminds us that our forgiveness is right now. It's here today. So for that reason, Luke, instead of looking... um, you know, at this, this giant party scene, he stays pretty focused on Jesus. And there are several details that are unique to Luke's telling of this story. And every one of them points to the rejection of Jesus by, by the Jewish leaders or or the shallowness of the dedication of the crowd, the Oklos, to Jesus. All right? Only Luke mentions that they descend the Mount of Olives. He shows that Jesus is still outside Jerusalem. And you're going to see this as you were to continue to read through Luke's gospel. You see he just keeps emphasizing Jesus is outside the city. He's outside the city. Over and over and over again. It's a symbol of Jesus' rejection by the people. You see it in Luke, these references to Jesus being outside Jerusalem. You see it in Luke 19, 28, 29, 37, and 41. By verse 35, Jesus is in the city, but there's no mention of him actually entering it. He's just there. Then in Luke 23, 26, we see that Jesus is led away after his beatings, and along the way he meets Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country. What's that mean? Jesus is being led out of the city. In fact, we read in Luke twenty three thirty two that Jesus is led out of the city to be crucified. All of this points to Jesus' rejection by the leaders and the people. And, and, and Luke's, Luke mentions that this crowd of disciples are praising him for the, the miracles. I, I think that that just reinforces the shallowness of their commitment. Like, they're totally all in on the spectacular. Like, woo, yay, Jesus! But when it gets hard, they are out of there. In fact, Luke also omits from, from verse 38, Matthew and Mark's word, Hosanna, which we, we sang earlier, it means save us now. That would have been weird. Mostly Luke wrote his, Bible, his gospel for Gentiles, and they were like, what's that word? I don't even know what that means. So he just leaves it out. Partly because his Gentile readers won't understand what Luke means, but also because I think it illustrates the shallow, fickle nature of the crowd. Because they don't really want what Jesus is coming to give them, do they? They don't really want that. I mean, they, yes, they want political salvation. Oh, yeah, Jesus, come in and just get rid of these dirty old Romans. And yeah, we're gonna be a, he's going to be a king and he's going to rule. He can give us bread and fish. That's one meal. He, he wants to give you so much more. He wants to give you the bread of life. He wants to give you living water. Not just this one meal. They don't really want what Jesus is trying to give him. They're celebrating Jesus. But in Luke's gospel, they seem way more interested in Jesus' ability to do miracles. And it's almost like they, they, this crowd has a fear of FOMO. Have you heard that acronym, FOMO? Fear of missing out. Like they don't want to miss the party, right? They've got FOMO. Like, ah, I don't want. You know, can you imagine being a Jew in that day? And like someone says, hey man, did you see the procession? Jesus of Nazareth came in. What? No! Oh man, I was over on the west side of the hill. I didn't even hear it until he got there. Oh, I missed it. They're all in on the spectacular. The crowd is like, yay, Jesus. And he's got a tear rolling down his cheek. Because he said, you don't, you don't really want what I want to give you. The crowd's fickle. Oliver Cromwell, who took the British throne away from Charles I and established the Commonwealth, once said to a friend as they were passing through a public place and the, the, the crowd was cheering for him, he said, Do not trust to the cheering, for these persons would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. <laughs> There's a guy who understands crowd psychology. The crowd is celebrating, even if it's shallow and fickle. The chief priests and leaders are trying to get him to shut up. And all that is going on. And Jesus sees the city and he weeps over it. He weeps because the city of peace can't see that the only one who can bring them peace is there. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road for us. Tell me what you celebrate, and I'll tell you what you worship. Tell me what you celebrate, and I'll tell you what you worship. If the the thing you celebrate most are the cults, like the Indianapolis kind, to the exclusion of God, then that's what you worship. If the thing you celebrate most is when your political party wins a victory nationally, then that's what you worship. If the thing you celebrate most is when someone lives their life outside the will of God and they celebrate that in our culture... Then our culture has become your God. You tell me what you celebrate, and I'll tell you what you worship. The crowd knew how to celebrate spectacle, the leaders knew how to celebrate power and influence. And Jesus couldn't because he was too occupied weeping for the lostness of the city. Let me put it this way if you can only praise God when things are going great or you're in charge, your faith is still immature. You've got room to grow. You need to grow. But when your heart rejoices over the same things that give God joy, like when the lost are found, when the broken are made whole, when the dead are raised, then you can be sure that you've come out of the crowd and really are a follower of Jesus. See, there's one more test to know if you're really a follower of Jesus and not part of this very fickle crowd. Look with me at Luke 23. Turn over maybe a few pages in your Bible. Swipe down a few screens on your phone. Look down at Luke 23, starting in verse 1. Now, what we're going to do here is track out several occurrences of this word crowd. So, we're going to to move quick through several passages, okay? So, look with me, Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole assembly, that's significant, rose and led him off to Pilate. This is Jesus' trial. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes pay, payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Jesus answered literally in the original language. He said, you said it. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, "I Now, did you see that? Chief priests and the crowd. Okay, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Now skip down to verse 13. Look at this. Verse 13, Then Pilate announced together to the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Now look at this verse 18. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city. Pilate tries again. They're like, no, Pilate tries again. And finally they begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him. See, the final test to know whether or not you're really a follower of Jesus is this. Do you understand your own betrayal? Do you understand your own betrayal? And every one of us has done that. We've all betrayed Jesus. We've betrayed Him by our sin. We betray Him by our selfishness. And we betray Him when we choose to do what is convenient over what is right. Now, we didn't read the scene where Judas tells the Jewish leaders he'll betray Jesus. It's interesting. The crowd, which was not always on Jesus' side, serves as a buffer there. Judas says, we're not going to go do this because of the crowd. And then later when he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says he brought a crowd with him. and That means a mob. they got clubs and rocks and sticks and knives, and they're going to come and they're going to get Jesus no matter what. It can get confusing keeping track of who this crowd is in these final chapters, but it matters to the story that Luke is telling, so let's track this out. For those of you watching online, this might get a little weird because we're going to bounce back and forth from me to the verse, and just hang with us, okay? All right, just hang in there. Um, first of all, you got Judas, who's scared of the Palm Sunday crowd, I mean, their faith may be shallow, but in a, you know they protect Jesus, right? They 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 think he's awesome. So Judas brings his own bad crowd to the Garden of Gethsemane. Once we get to Pilate in the narrative, Luke is going to use the same word for crowd, but he's going to use it in a different way. See, Pilate addresses his acquittal of Jesus to the chief priests and uh, the crowd. Now, the last narrative antecedent for crowd is the whole assembly that we read about in Luke twenty-three one. So the 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 crowd there. Could be just the Sanhedrin. However, look at verse twenty-three, chapter twenty-three, verse thirteen. It says, "Then the whole assembly rose and led him off." Um, where'd I go? Yeah, the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Okay, um, I think that that's yes. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. All right? Do you see that? Now, Luke uses a word translated people here. It's the word La'an. But it seems like he's equating the people here, of verse 13, with the crowd of verse 4. Then in Luke 23, 18, we have this. We, there's this whole crowd. Okay? Then the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. In verse 18, the phrase whole crowd is the NIV's way to translate a phrase that literally says, they all. It's just, it, that's what it said, they all. Okay, They all cried out in unison. Here's what this means. The they all of verse 18 is the chief priests, rulers, and people of verse 13, which is the crowd or Oklos of verse 4. It's the same group of people. What that means is the people who were saying, Yay, Hosanna, Jesus, on Sunday, were saying, Crucify Him on Thursday. It's a betrayal. It wasn't just Judas in the garden. It wasn't just Peter around a charcoal fire. It was the whole crowd, which means it's also me, and it's also you. Every one of us does this. When we sin, when we choose selfishness, when we choose expediency over what's right, we do this too. Every time we do that, we betray Jesus because we act like he's not the rightful king that he is. Dorothy L. Sayers wrote in The Man Born to be King, God was executed by people painfully like us in a society very similar to our own by a corrupt church, a timid politician, and a fickle proletariat led by professional agitators. Ouch. Sound familiar? (laughs) Listen, the way you understand your own betrayal of Jesus makes a big difference whether or not you're his follower. If it grieves your whole being, if it makes you want to seek out his grace and and, um, labor to choose what is righteous, what is selfless, and even, yes, what is weird or hard, then it means you're on the right path. But if you can compartmentalize your life and you can put on different personas based on where you are and who you're with, then you're not here yet. Then you don't understand yet the nature of your own betrayal, and I want to challenge you this week, this Holy Week, to spend some time alone with Jesus. Get get your Bible out, and I don't know about yours. Mine has red letters where where it's Jesus talking. That's a decision of a translation committee, but it's I think it's generally pretty accurate. Just read that. Just spend some time alone with Jesus. Get a sense of the the depth of your own betrayal of Him that your sins, my sins, sent Him to the cross. Because when you get that and you realize how much He loves you that He died there in your place for your sin and all He wants you to do is love Him back. Okay. Yes, Lord. Please. G.K. Chesterton, the famous philosopher and theologian, was once asked, What do you think of civilization? <laughs> he said, I think it's a great idea. Why didn't somebody start one? <laughs> He's a pretty sharp guy. Later on, there was an article, there was a series of articles in the newspaper entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And he wrote the editor, and this is what he wrote Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World Today, I am. Yours, G.K. (laughs) Chesterton. See, Jesus is calling you today to obey when he says to do something weird or hard, to celebrate the right things, and to understand your own betrayal. And the only way to do that is to live like Jesus is king. And I know that's tough for Americans to do that, because 242 years ago, we got rid of one. (laughs) King George wasn't a very good king. The King Jesus died for you. He entered into a city in triumph. And he knew that the crowds were fickle that day. He knew that just five days later they were going to scream for his blood, which he willingly gave because he wept over that city. And if you're here today and you're outside the grace of Jesus, he's weeping for you too. Are you going to live like Jesus is your king? Are you going to lay your life at his feet? Maybe you've never done that. In just a second, we're going to sing together, and you're going to have a chance to to come down front and acknowledge him as Lord, King, and God and say, I want to live for you. I want to be baptized. I want to receive your spirit. We'll do that right here this morning. we got everything we need to do it right now. Maybe you need to walk out of here recommitted and like the video we watched earlier and go, you know what, I know somebody who's not in that place, and I need to invite them, have them come with me next Sunday. And they're going to hear a message of hope and restoration. You need to bring them. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I just got something going on. I need to pray with somebody. We'll have people down here, folks in the next step room. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together. And you respond as God leads you today. Let's stand.